Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills. In this fifth season, we're speaking with visionary chefs, gardeners, farmers, organizers, artists, and scientists about migrations of all kinds. We'll hear about food and the experience of leaving home and in finding new ones, of decolonizing food traditions and tracing recipes through the movements of diaspora. Delicious Revolution is made by Devin Sampson and Chelsea Wills. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find all of our episodes along with pictures and more on the website deliciousrevolutionshow.com. Sana Haveri Kadri is a sometimes salty, permanently hungry, rather creative human. She was raised in post-colonial Bombay, wound up in the produce aisles of California, and can be currently found at Sana Javieri Kadri on Instagram or in person wherever there are vegetables to be found. She is also schemer-in-chief for Diaspora Co-op. In this episode, Sana talks with Chelsea about living between Bombay and the Bay Area, the role of aesthetics in telling difficult stories, and decolonization as a series of questions. A heads up, Sana and Chelsea drop a few swear words in this episode. Here's Chelsea speaking with Sana Haveri Kadri. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. This is great. I already, like just in our like pre-conversation, I feel like you said all these things that made me recontextualize all the things I've been thinking about. So hopefully in an hour, we'll come out with more brilliance and I won't have to do anything. Um, but my name is Sana Javeri Kadri. I'm a photographer most days for work and then also an artist, most recently a businesswoman, question mark, and um, also work in food branding and marketing. Um, and I think we're here to talk about moving around and migration and diaspora, amongst other things. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. So I started learning about your work through People's Kitchen Collective and the joke this season is I'm doing a season about migration. And basically that means I'm just interviewing people's kitchen collective on multiple continents. Um, and why don't we start with, what do you think your first memory of food is? This is actually a very clear memory. Um, I remember our cook Lakshmi, who is still my family's cook, uh, sneaking me chocolate. So I was sitting on the balcony of our apartment in Mumbai and I was in this little yellow rocker. And I think I only remember it because it's now my brother's rocker. And she came up to me and she knew that I hadn't been eating all day. And she gave me three pieces of chocolate. And I remember eating it super slowly. And then my mom walking in as I was on the last piece. And this is all a kind of foggy memory. But as I was on the last piece, she asked Lakshmi, you know, what did you give her? And Lakshmi was like, nothing, just something for her to enjoy. And they proceeded again to this huge fight in front of me. And I just remember looking back and forth between them and eating my piece of chocolate. And I think I was probably like three and a half. So it's a really early memory. But Lakshmi also has this running joke <laughs> that she's been saying since I was born that nobody would ever kidnap me because I eat too much. So they would send me back. So, yeah. Is it true? Do you eat too much? I definitely eat too much. I mean, Sakib and I bond about this all the time because we're every minute is spent thinking about food. And and I mean, I definitely, I've gone through periods where it's been unhealthy and I've struggled with it and been like, why are you so obsessed with food? And it's a method of control. But right now I'm in a really good phase of being obsessed with food. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um where did you grow up? And Sakib was telling me as I was coming over here that, you know, your life has been in lots of different parts of the world. Yeah. Uh, my parents were in Berkeley when they decided to have a family and they went from uh, coming from very conventional Indian households of sort of middle class aspirations to coming together against their parents' wishes and really wanting to like trailblaze their own life and create a family and a, I guess, career for themselves that wasn't what they came from. And I think I usually give my mom a lot of credit for it because the feminist in me wants to smash the patriarchy every day. But I think that for my dad too, coming from a very um, status oriented family where his last name holds a lot of weight, it was very brave and very hard to leave that for 
wanting to work in, you know, development and urban planning and architecture and wanting to change the world. Um, what I'm curious about is home has been a lot of different places for you. Yeah. So where do you call home now? Yeah. And I think I'm really interested in like, what does that taste like? So I think a year ago when I moved to Oakland, I was set on this idea of like, I want the traditional American idea of home. Like I want a backyard and a picket fence and like, I want to grow kale and I want to know my neighbors and I want to go to school board meetings. And it was a very romanticized idea of the definitive American dream home. And that fell apart within six months, like literally fell apart in every way that you can imagine. And I think now I've realized that because I don't belong in any of the places where I don't fully belong in Mumbai anymore, I didn't belong in Italy where I went to high school. Um, I definitely didn't belong in, in Southern California. And I don't belong in Oakland. Home is going to have to be a transient thing. And it's going to have to be, home is in seasons, you know? Um, Mohsin Hamid, I think, is the author. He is an author from Lahore. And he... He wrote a couple incredible books, but he lives between New York and Lahore. And he wrote a New Yorker piece that I, I'll, I'll send you about severing and messing up every single romantic relationship he's ever had in the past decade, because every time he went to a place, he would miss the other and it would wreak complete havoc on his life. And he missed every sort of potential profitable real estate boom because he could have bought property in New York, but he was thinking about Lahore. Then he could have bought property in Lahore and he was thinking about New York. And finally, he just realized that we are this very privileged bunch who have the ability to have home in seasons. Like right now, for this next week, the Bay Area is home. And I feel very excited to have a home for a week. And then on June 20th, I'll go to Mumbai and that'll be home for six weeks. And then I will, I'm not sure where I'll be, probably in the Philippines for all of August and that'll be home. And I think for the next few years, that's the healthiest mode for me because putting a lot of pressure on one of the homes has always let me down. Like the minute I put pressure on India being home, all the parts of India that don't understand me come glaring at me and sort of hurt and become very um, just hurtful. They, they feel like these places are rejecting me, even though they're not. They're just not all encompassing. They're not places that are trying to give me grief. Does that kind of answer? Yeah, I think before we started recording, we were talking about how I can think of so many people whose lives are like that, right? And I think wherever you exist in the social strata is the your place of clearest focus, right? So you can see others who look like you. Mm -hmm. So I say that for myself in the way that like I see other artists who also do like social justice work throughout the world and they're like, I could pick them out of a crowd in the airport or something, you know, it's like a funny, it's a funny thing, right? But I think before we were, recording, I was sharing with you an experience of the campesinos I worked with in Southern Mexico coming back and forth to the United States and them having memories and senses of belonging in both places and how I think food really offers one of those points of entry for people, right? So does it for you? What has that been like for you? Um, I think that growing up, Indian food, and I think a lot of immigrant kids have this story where your culture's food is hated on or made fun of or somehow not good. I grew up reading Enid Blyton books, which are this old cranky British lady who's apparently very homophobic. I know that now. Um, and I grew up reading about treacle pudding and like golden syrup and all these funny, a toad in a hole, egg in a hole, frog in a hole, that thing, toad in a hole. One of the three. Um, and... That was my idea of good food. Me and my brother would save up all of our pocket money to go to the American store to buy fruit roll-ups. And that was the most aspirational food. All my aunts, when they came from America, they would bring Taco Bell salsa packets in like these large jars. Like they would bring maybe 200 Taco Bell salsa packets and we would eat them over the course of three months until another aunt came to visit. So... I guess when I started trying to, 
when I left Mumbai to go to Italy, I was very confused about where I was. And I didn't understand that I was in, I was living in this village that was part of the Austro-Hungarian, used to be part of the Austro-Hungarian empire and was on the Slovenian Italian border. And I didn't speak the language, still just about speak the language. It's a dialect of Italian. So who speaks the language? And the only way I had to understand things was commerce, like was going to the supermarket and walking around and trying to understand why are people eating these biscuits? Or like, how is it that it's culturally okay here to eat ice cream for dinner? Or, you know, I didn't grow up eating wheat three times a day and my digestive system is going to shit, but all of these people are managing it. It just became a way to ask questions and actually have them answered in a language I understood because I just had to watch and eat and see. I went to stay with a host family and they, I guess, spending a week drinking wine with them at lunch helped me understand drinking culture in Italy in a way that had really confused me because in India, drinking is seen as a very sort of, drinking is associated with alcoholism. There's very little like middle ground of like, oh, casual drinking. Whereas here they were drinking at lunch. And I spent the first couple of days being worried that I was with these booze hounds. And then I was like, oh, it's just an Italian thing. And I think, so because I was 16 and it was at a time when I was asking questions about the world already and trying to understand the world, food just became an easy lens to answer all those questions. And then you also get to eat when you're asking those questions. So, you know, and then when I got to America, I thought that because I grew up with this very Americanized, American-influenced childhood, that I was coming home. I, I was convinced that I was finally coming back to the promised land. It was the America that my parents had left for their, what I at the time thought was a very sad, non-American life. And I expected to get off the plane and just fit right in. And I knew all the music and all the TV shows and that was not the case at all. I went through two years of straight up culture shock. Um, I thought I was entering a Hollywood set and instead I ended up in the Southern California desert, which is mostly cactus and white supremacists and strip malls. And I'd never been to a strip mall. Um, I didn't know why there was so much parking everywhere. Um, there was just a lot of things that shocked me. And again, the easiest way to try to understand it was through consumption um, not, I don't even want to say food. It was through, I spent hours walking around the grocery store. That was my go-to move to understand America. And then I also spent hours walking through the dining hall where I was like, wow, they eat peanut butter by the spoon here. Um, just so many little things. Um, or that red meat was so big and you could eat so much of it. I grew up mostly vegetarian and the idea of meat eating didn't make sense. And I would, I, I remember very clearly sitting in the dining hall as a freshman watching the football players eat beef and just being amazed and just being like, that's like a pound of beef. Where is it going? <laughs> I love grocery stores. I go to grocery stores everywhere in the world because for me, it's this very grounding experience mm -hmm. of like understanding what people do. Mm -hmm. Right. And last week when I was talking to Nora, we were talking about markets in Mexico and what a central part of life that is. But I think you learn so much by seeing how people buy food Yeah, too, right? I like I'm a shameless squeezer, like in the, in the produce section, I have to squeeze everything. <laughs> like it's really takes a long time for me to get through a produce section like that. And I also like have to talk to the guy and get, you know, know everything about it. It's really kind of uncomfortable for other people sometimes, but, but I think Moving, that's such an interesting point of translation, right? To be going from one place to another. And this, I think this idea like that, you know, a place. I have that experience so many times in my life of working internationally and living internationally where you have so much preconception about it and then you show up and it's totally different. But food is something everybody's an expert in. You got to do it every day. And so how did, not only do you like eat too much, and that's, that's clearly, you, you know a lot about how you eat too much too, probably, but you started taking pictures of food and telling stories about food. So when I was 15, I dropped out of high school, uh, before, right before, 14, right before I went to Italy, I dropped out of school and um, had gotten myself into large volumes of trouble was doing lots of drugs, hanging out with lots of boys and 
we don't like boys anymore for that reason. Well, that and others. And my parents were incredible about it. They, I can't remember a single time that year that they shouted at me or questioned my general fuckery. Ooh, I shouldn't swear. Um, but they, they were just like, okay, what do you want to do? What do you need? How do we make sure you get better? How do we make sure that you don't have to live this life or live like this? And my mom gave me her camera and she said, when I was young and angsty and really struggled, I like explored the city with the camera. And I think it was a time when Bombay really confused me. I didn't understand the city. I didn't understand my social position within it. I was discovering what it meant to be an upper class Indian, but still be aware of the rest of the world. Because I think the way class works in India is that you ignore you ignore your class. You're very ignorant about it and you put your blinders on. Um, and I didn't have blinders. I wasn't raised to have blinders. So it was a very uncomfortable experience of privilege and uncomfortable experience of becoming a teenager and being like, oh shit. And one that my, my, the rest of my family didn't have, like my little brother, I was waiting for him to turn 15 and go through the anxiety and angst that I did. And he breezed right through it. And I think it made me realize that it was just something that was personal to me. But she gave me a camera and I started just walking around the city with her camera. And it became the only way I knew how to interact with the city. I don't know how to converse with people. I still struggle with that because I feel very hyper aware of their positionality versus mine. But I know how to photograph the city and I know how to understand the history of the city through photography. So until I got to America, my my predominant way of interacting with the world was with a camera. Um, and, and it really healed me. I think I went from being a really, really messed up kid who had, I mean, from drugs to sexual abuse to, it all happened it, through my teenagehood. And that camera gave me confidence. There was things out there I could do in a, a place in the world. And so then once I got to the US and was suddenly fascinated by consumption and now that I'm saying it, that makes sense. America is about consumption and I'm fascinated by by it. Um, it just became the most obvious thing to photograph. I, it's also, it's not exactly a beautiful country. Um, yeah, I stand by that statement. It's not a beautiful country. It, I mean, if you go to national parks, it's a beautiful country, but often as an immigrant, national parks are not um, how you experience the country. I mean, I was experiencing strip malls and they weren't quite as beautiful as, you know, tree-laden Mumbai streets. So, so what I was then drawn to was food to photograph. And I think I went through a pretty solid phase of being like, ooh, food porn, I want to make food porn. And just finding it very exciting to document all my meals. Um, and that wore off within a couple years where I think it was a, it was a professor who said, she she was very harsh where she said something along the lines of, do you really want to be that basic girl? And I was just like, Wow. Um, thanks. <laughs> and I don't I don't think that's true. Um, but I think meeting PKC and meeting Sita, Sita especially because she's an artist and thinks about visuals and representation a lot. And then also the podcast, The Racist Sandwich. Um and I think they had they had a podcast with somebody called a photographer called Celeste, who really went into how Photography and visual representation has so much power. And especially if you're photographing food, the ability to change the narrative is huge. And I think that's where beyond just wanting to photograph food, it became, I see all these issues in the world of food and maybe my photos can change that because, because photos legitimize things, right? Like when there's a photo of something, it's real. And I don't think I'm there yet. I don't think I'm representing exactly what I want to be yet. But I think that's kind of what I'm working towards and what I, and what PKC has allowed me to do in a lot of ways there. My first gig. So your photographs are really beautiful. Like you like a pretty photo and what's that feel like? Um, see that. And I talk about this. I struggle with that, that I love beauty and I love prettiness. Um, I was raised by a family of designers. Um, our home is beautiful. 
aesthetics have just, I think from the day I was born, I was told that it is important that things are well-designed and gorgeous. Um, I think I've embraced that at this point, that beautiful can be used to manipulate and then beautiful can also be used to tell difficult stories. An ex-girlfriend of mine actually said, oh yeah, I look at your Instagram mostly for the pretty photos and I just ignore the rambles underneath because they're too emotional anyway. Um, and I was like, well, there's a lot of people who like the emotion, dude. Um, yeah. Well, that sounds like a complicated personal situation. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what, oh, there's a lot there to think about. To me, it feels like, well, you're pretty young and you figure, you know, you're doing a lot of different things and how old are you? You're 23. Yeah. And it feels like this learning of your own language, right? And so where does that language come from? There's food in this language. There's consumption in this language. There's, there's aesthetics in this language. What, what is your own language and why is it important to have one? Wow. I feel like I'm going to name drop PKC for the next hour, but Sakib and I had a conversation recently about how it's important to find, to invent the words for the work that you want to do where, and I think about the word CSA a lot, where the word community supported agriculture was literally invented. And by, just by having that word, like a way of consuming, producing and sharing food was invented with it. But if it was described as, oh, this thing where you pay me up front and then I send you food, it Nobody would pay for that shit, but CSA. And now it works and now it's spread. And I feel like a lot of the time, the work of PKC now in the next two years is coming up with a word for the work that they do. Because there isn't really a word. Like they're a movement, they're a revolution, they're amazing. But like, what are they? And I think I feel very similarly for myself that I work with food. I, I cook, I work with chefs a lot. I photograph, I work with farmers. I used to farm. Um, I work in branding. Like there's been all these different ways. In some ways I'm young enough to do them all and know that some will peter out or, and some will take me places. But I also feel like there's room to do all if I can come up with a word for it. I think a lot of the past few months has been trying to like reach into the depths of my mind and be like, you have it in you to come up with this word. Like you just need a word because like the term creative director, what does that mean? But the minute you have that word, you can do anything. Suddenly you're shooting target commercials, creative director. What are the other ones? Producer. That's the most mysterious one. What are you producing? Can I be a producer? So does that answer your language question? Or not? That was you were asking a different question. No, I'm not. I, well, first I want to apologize because I didn't mean to be condescending. So no, I, no. I hope I wasn't. Um, I just think like, what an exciting, I mean, I definitely feel like I'm, I hope I'm always doing this, right? Of developing my own language in conjunction with my community, right? It doesn't exist on its own. Like a lot of times I don't know what my word means until someone spits it back out at me, mm -hmm. right? And sometimes that hurts right? It's not always like a soft, touchy-feely mm -hmm. process. But I think for me, what feels so captivating about learning someone else's language or watching someone else's language emerge is that we need new languages, mm -hmm. right? I think in this moment where things feel very tangled, <laughs> right? I mean, Donald Trump is the president who thought that was going to happen, right? It feels like the disparity in all kinds of ways feels so present in our daily lives. I feel like we need new languages for that. Mm -hmm. And I think one of them is through cultural representations of food mm -hmm. because there is room for complexity. And so we'll link this, but you just wrote an article mm -hmm. and it feels like the beginning of an attempt to articulate some of this complexity. We're talking about the mango one. Yeah. yeah, right. And so it feels like the beginning of an attempt to start to articulate your story and the story of fruit. And, the, you know, I mean, it touches in place and 
and people's conceptions of place and sweetness and memory and all of these things and um, and I'm butchering it by describing it. <laughs> but that isn't that how it feels to understand the world? And why is it so complicated? And why do we need it to be so complicated? <laughs> yeah, I I think that so I was working for a food business until a couple months ago, food business that I love. And a lot of the work that I was doing at Byright was um, photographing produce and photographing so-called the building blocks of California cuisine. Um, so it was all about, you know, every week I had a list of citrus that I was photographing or melons and I can now spout more varietals of mel melons that I ever expected. But um there was so much documentation attached to those things. Like there was this whole, citrus is a particularly nerdy one of mine where California, the California sort of state building project is so tied up with citrus, right? The citrus groves were part of the founding of California and part of the gold rush, but they also acted as a way, as a site of erasure where the citrus groves initially were the places where immigrants came to work along with the railroad, or once railroad work dried up, they worked in the citrus groves. And then a lot of the times, Chinese immigrants were the ones who developed new varietals of citrus. But that history of Asian immigrants working citrus has very much been erased for the idea of citrus as like white all-American and Alice Waters' California cuisine citrus. I mean, when I think of Byrate citrus, I definitely think of like white America chilling on Dolores Park, you know, eating a spread of orange and yellow deliciousness. And it just seemed like in telling the the popular story or telling the dreamy ad-like story of food, I was missing a lot. And I was, I kept feeling lost telling those stories. I kept feeling like, where do I fit into this? Do I just have to like learn this language of California cuisine and then Eventually, I'll have been here long enough and assimilated well enough, and then this will make sense to me, and I'll fit in. And I think realize that I probably fit in better in telling the in-between story. So I guess the Mango article was was trying to do that. Of I don't fit in with the Alfonso Mango-loving masses. I also don't fit in with um, the American idea of a mango as exotic and luscious but I do fit in in being able to tell the story of the in-between. And so how, that's okay. I forgot the question too. Um, like, how are you exploring that erasure? I mean, so you were with that article, but how is that? I mean, I'm so curious with the citrus now. Did, did you just leave it at that or did you? No, I, I made a book um, that I would love to revisit because it was a shit book at the time. Um when I was, it, it was actually the way that I became comfortable with Southern California. I hated Southern California. It overwhelmed me. And I started doing research on the part of Southern California I was in, which is called the Inland Empire. And the Inland Empire is east of LA. It is one of the best and worst places in the world, I think. And I went to Pomona College, which is a small liberal arts college, part of the Claremont College Consortium. And I started going to the special collections and looking at these citrus labels that were very pretty, and I was drawn to how pretty they were. I mostly wanted to make my own citrus labels and make pretty things and looked at them and realized that they were all either very, very offensive labels of Native Americans or making fun of Asian people. Um, the citrus labels were wildly offensive, essentially, and it quickly became apparent that like I couldn't use them or I couldn't paint them or whatever pretty idea I had in my head to do with them. And that I think started, I started asking a bunch of questions around why are these citrus labels so offensive and what realized that the entirety of the Inland Empire was built on citrus um, and that I was within walking distance of the oldest citrus tree in the United, in the United States that was still there. Um, it's in Riverside. It's really great. It's a state monument and they have, uh, citrus popsicles that you can get outside that's by this little Mexican lady who's been selling them there. I think this is the third generation of citrus popsicles outside the state memorial monument. I think that in college, doing that work was was just research and it was part of school. 
But I also knew that I didn't fit into academia. I didn't want that article about citrus to go into an academic journal and then maybe be posted on the Huffington Post 10 years from now as a condensed, like, clickbait version of my research. I think that's when I found Sita, literally, where I was organizing this food justice conference at school. And I was I, somebody told me about Sita and Sakib, and I had this phone conversation with Sita. And I remember sitting outside the art building on the phone with this woman and being like, wow, there's hope in the outside world. Like, there's somebody doing the exact same work that I want to do, but in the outside world. Like before that, I thought it had to be in academia. I thought that was the only site for that kind of research and inquiry. And it seemed like she was doing it in a public, interactive, community-oriented, colorful way. And I think that I kept working on that citrus project and then started looking into colonialism in India and how that affected food because I saw her doing it. And I, that gave me a lot of sort of hope. I call her my mom all the time. I think it makes her really awkward, but she's definitely my adopted mom, or I want her to be, I guess. So I was just, I just interviewed PKC like an hour ago. So it's kind of funny for me to go from one conversation to the next, because we were talking a lot about narratives mm -hmm. and how for them, just like you said, a lot of their work in the next two years is relearning and what did Jocelyn say, recolonizing. And then I think teaching a narrative that's a different one than we're hearing about disparity and you know, a post-colonial world and so many other things. I can't really recap that in like five words or less. But we didn't talk too much about aesthetic culture in, the, in that conversation. And as you're talking, to me, it sounds like that's a big part of what you're doing is like this rediscovery and re-knowing of some kind of visual language where you're actually part of the story, right? And you as you not you as like the representative of all brown people or something <laughs> else like that, right? Yeah. That that you are complicated. I mean, great, now I'm calling you young and complicated. <laughs> and I am rude. <laughs> yeah, wow, <laughs> exactly. No, but that it's complex, right? Yeah. That we can't tell a story of farm to table in this really succinct mm -hmm. and easy way because that's not actually how the world is or how people's lives are. So about, what was this? This was in April. I went to Omnivore Books in San Francisco. I uh, love it. And I pulled out every single book I could find about India, just whatever. And I asked for help. And I had this pile of like 25 books. And I was there from 10 in the morning until 2 p.m. just flipping through. I was like, I'm going to buy a couple, but mostly just here to stare at them. And they were, except for one, they were all shot by white women. And it just made me so sad. It didn't make me angry. And I'm a very angry person. It just made me really sad because it felt like it It has been such hard work to um, re-know my, my country's food. And it's been so hard. It's been like in India, we don't, uh, we have such a colonial hangover, right? We're still so into digest digestive biscuits and cutlets and just the worst of British cuisine, um, that the ability to love and represent Indian food is very rare and very hard work. And all of these cookbooks, they were, they were repetitions of the same thing. There was like photos of the market and photos of, ooh, the lady cleaning scales of fish. And just like very aesthetically pleasing, but very, very shallow pieces of work that didn't tell complicated stories. And to me, a cookbook is already meant to be a complicated story. A cookbook is history and, you know, generations of food. So I think this is also me putting vibes out there that if you're shooting a cookbook about India or like the diaspora in general, just find a photographer who is as like passionate as you. A lot of the people I posted on Facebook, I went on a rant on Facebook right after my trip to Omnivore being like, why is this the case? Why are all of these cookbooks photographed by white women? And a lot of friends are either in the middle of cookbook deals or have published cookbooks and got a bit defensive, I think, and explained that that's the publishing industry. Very often you have no control over who your photographer is. And so I guess they were saying, well, the onus is on the publisher. We have no control. It's a money game. And these are the people they pick. And I think my hope is that the publishing industry will then understand that 
if you're shooting a cookbook about India and you're not having, you're having an Indian person write it, you should probably have an Indian person photograph it, especially if you're paying $5,000 to send them to India, like send a brown person home. Come on. But let's, let's talk about why, because I know that cookbook too. I mean, I can practically recite to you what the pictures are, right? (laughs) And they're pretty, like they take some nice pictures and yet, like, why is it important that it's more complicated than that? And why is it important? Like, what are those other pictures? Okay. That's a good question. I like that. Okay. So I think about, I think about biryani, for example. Biryani is, I think, cult food. Everybody loves biryani. Um, but it specifically in India, it's so wrapped up in being a love-hate thing of we kind of don't like Muslims, but we really love biryani. But still, there's very few Hindu cooks that will cook biryani. It's always cooked by a Muslim cook. And in taking a very standard photo off biryani, like you're missing the opportunity for that entire story of Hindu-Muslim complication and and biryani being a site of Hindus Muslims coming together. And I think in photography, when you present a photo of just biryani, um, rather than biryani eaten by different people, biryani with the man who cooked it, or actually I take that back, biryani by the generations of women who cooked it, even though the man gets all the credit, you're, you're correcting the narrative. Does that make sense? Well, for me... What I thought when you were describing that is how incredibly decontextualized things are. Exactly. Right? And so for me, decontextualized is boring. Um, It's flat. And it's oftentimes really repressive in these really invisible ways. So you could ask a question when you see that photograph of the woman cleaning fish for the I mean, that woman never stops cleaning fish as far as I can tell. She's been cleaning fish for like 200 years. But you don't see anything else about her and you don't see anything else about the context of a whole story, right? So biryani is such a great one because it's it's how things bump up against each other, right? I, th- I think there's, well, when I think of Indian food, I think of so many dishes like that that are like these uncomfortable friction points. Right. But... It's talked about like, well, India is India. Like, what India are you talking about? India is huge, right? I mean, that's last week when I was talking to Norma, I was like, Mexican food is Mexican food. Mexican food is not Mexican food. Mexican food is, you know, it's so specific to where it comes from and what that means for our world and how, you know, climate change affects these places and all of these things. And by only having a picture of a woman cleaning fish, we don't know anything about each other. There's no possibility to humanize each other. I think um, something that was glaringly obvious that I missed is that it reifies the exoticism narrative, right? The obvious thing is that when I came to America, one of the genuine questions a frat boy asked me is, do you go to school on an animal? And I just looked at him where I was like, yeah, I go to school on a tiger. And, uh, and then I started to play with it where... At some point, I pretended not to know what Kleenex was because I was like, you know what? Screw it. Like, I'm going to screw with you guys. And I looked very innocently at these two boys who were going to take great delight in saving me from my savage ways. And I said, what's Kleenex? And they kind of jumped all over themselves being like, oh, you know, when you're sad, like that that thing that used to blow your nose. And I was like, oh, my God. But I found that around India specifically, People expect images of spices and of, um, and it's a it's a colonial image. It's the image that the British created of India, that has then been reinforced constantly by the West. My Indian childhood was parleyji biscuits, American food, like lusting after Nutella sandwiches, and um, kurkure, which is essentially. Indian chips, like packeted chips and Maggie noodles, actually. Maggie noodles runs the country. Um, And that's as much Indian food. It's a capitalist Indian food, yes. But, or my grandmother, not a fan of the kitchen, a a very awkward feminist, one of the first gynecologists in India, total badass. And she 
was like, I'm not me. Like I stepped out of the kitchen. I'm not about that. And so when I wanted the grandmotherliness of a grandmother and wanted to like make cakes and, you know, do things that other people did with their grandmothers, she was like, okay, we're going to buy like processed coconut biscuits from the store. We're going to buy ready-made chocolate. We're going to melt the chocolate. We're going to put like dip it in the biscuits. We're going to put that in the fridge and it's going to be a cake. And then we can move on to doing other things like working on your spelling. (laughs) So those stories of food, I, I'm trying to think of a better example because they're all. I, why is it important for you to play with it as opposed to whoever this like proverbial white woman is who who is who plays with that image though? Because when you're describing that, I'm imagining this picture of spices. They're all in that triangle shape. Mm-hmm. They're like <laughs> on a mountain. Yeah, exactly. They've like n- nobody, no one's bought any of these spices in 50 years, <laughs> right? And it's it's very pristine. I've never been to this market, but theoretically it does exist yeah um and it's like some brightly colored background and there's a beautiful sari it doesn't matter where she is in the country you know yeah no i mean i've seen this book a lot of times but like why is it important for you to play with that uh is the question that you're asking should i unpack that a little bit okay so i think it's a more complicated story than these mountains of spices Mm -hmm. right and i think you're describing you know, like your grandmother, like many other grandmothers in the world was like, I'm done with the kitchen. We are not baking cakes. We are you like, you need to be smart. You need to be tough. You need to be something else other than a cake baker. Like that's a, not a thing to be. And yet I think that with the politics of exotification and, you know, like the otherness of the world, like theoretically, like me as an American and you as an Indian, I should be asking you the story of like your spicy grandmother or something right now, you know, and that I should be shocked when that's not your story. And I should really be arguing with you about how like you really, no, but India really is like those. You're just going with the real India. I mean, so you actually, they they really are those like piles of spices like that, right? Like, you know, don't burst my bubble that way that there is this other place and there's purity and there's um, something that's untouched and, you know, all of these other things. And of course you're bursting someone's bubble by explaining Kleenex to them. That's amazing. That's such a good story. <laughs> that one's really one for the books, but why is it important that your work continues to do that and that it continues to kind of, I don't know what's like, I, I think of Donna Haraway's description of like staying with the trouble. <laughs> Right. And and following that. Mm -hmm. I think because I found myself to be very colonized and very exoticizing for a long time where I felt that a lot of me and my peers, fellow sort of Indian brown, they see peers as self-hatred came from, um, not feeling real enough, feeling like because we didn't know the spicy India, we were the bad Indians or the half Indians or the misplaced Indians. And I think I know that unless, I think about my nieces a lot. I think about my nieces because they, this ties into other things. Um, I want them to grow up not questioning their identity at all. I guess if I didn't stay with the trouble, I feel like I would have become or risk becoming because I have family members like this, shout out, um, Trump supporting Indians who like to pretend that they're white and who are convinced that if they just like become doctors and work hard enough and buy enough in like three more Audis, they will become white people in America. And they live, I think, I think with a pretty deep amount of shame about where they really come from and what their country really is. And eventually their idea of what their country really is changes to the expectation of it. And I think that I'm terrified of being that and of losing the trouble. And I feel that I grew up in a country and a time when tracing real answers of like, why do we like cricket so much? Why are we eating cutlets for dinner? Am I a real Indian? What does it mean to be real? How did the British influence my idea of Indianness? How did the British influence the idea of India? Those questions were taboo and or 
not worth answering. It was just like, keep your head down, do your shit. And it just left a lot of sort of blank spaces and a lot of confusion. And I guess I feel like if I keep answering those questions or I keep asking those questions, maybe it goes back to the, the idea of creating a new language. We'll create a new language with which to speak. And then all the little girls that I love will be less angsty than I was. I think that's the dream. And then maybe that language is a question, right? Rather than an answer, right? Maybe maybe these pictures are a provocation rather than a statement. I think right now they are provocation. I don't think I have enough of a statement. I think when I, as somebody asked me the other day, you know, what does decolonization mean? And I said, dude, that's a big question. But also right now, decolonization is a series of questions and finding those answers and seeing where they take us because the problem with colonization and the like post-colonialism is that nobody asked questions. We just pretended it didn't happen or erased it or squashed it. Um, and I think what's so interesting for me about that is decolonization is a question for me as a white woman too, mm -hmm. right? So I feel so enlivened by getting to be part of a conversation where there are, are these provocations because it makes us all more visible to each other, right? I think the process of colonization, there's so much guilt and shame in every direction about that. And um, it feels deeply humanizing to me to begin to contextualize things as they are. Not easy. To complicate both sides. Right, exactly, right? That the process of not knowing is a scary one for everybody on both sides. Yeah. And that I really, now I'm getting all sentimental about it, but I really, I really, I love the inconclusiveness of that, right? I love the trouble that it sort of stirs up because there are so many surprises in it. Mm -hmm. And for me in a world that feels so glum, the hope is in the surprise, mm -hmm. right? And so maybe, I think we're close to the end, but do you want to talk about whatever's next for you? The surprise? <laughs> um, the surprise is that I realized that spices have had a very complicated history in India for a very long time, like 600 years kind of long time. And it really started when I was here and started seeing the turmeric latte. And it really annoyed me. And I didn't know why it just stirred up so much anger in me of, uh, I guess, a lot of immigrants feel this about their food being so shameful their whole lives and then it becoming cool and just being like, wait, I had that all along. Um, so there was this first emotional reaction that I quickly realized that there was very little I could do about, you know, move on. It's fine. Just don't drink the turmeric latte and don't pay dollars for it. Um but then when I started looking into turmeric and the history of turmeric, it just seemed like there'd been this history of exploitation that ran back all the way to the Portuguese and that the history of white people in particular making money off of spices had gone on too long and that system hasn't changed. Um, right now, five spice companies export most of India's highest quality spices and the government is in codes with them. Like the government very much facilitates that. And the domestic market for spices is usually corrupted with corn flour. Like most Indian spices are like 45% corn flour and then spice, whereas the West gets the really pure, yummy stuff. And granted, it's because the West is willing to pay for it. Yes, we get it. But it's also that that was the system, that that trade has gone on for so long that there was never a correction of it of like, oh, maybe we deserve this too. So in February, when I quit my job, I said, well, if white women want to drink turmeric lattes, then I want to make sure that as many brown farmers as possible can make money off of it and as much money as possible off of it. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm working with uh, four different cooperatives all over India to it started out as to just research turmeric and see what they needed, what it looked like. And what I found was that continuous cycle of a colonial narrative around food where 
in 1850s, some British stodgy dude decided that the turmeric from Alipi was the best. Why? Because it was bright yellow. Great. Um, did it have the highest curcumin content? Nope. Like, was it a particularly wonderful varietal for the soil? Did it grow very easily? Nope. Just bright yellow. And he was not a scientist. And so he didn't even look into the specific varietal. He was just like, all the bright yellow ones, those are Alipi turmeric. And even now at a spice shop, what you want, the most sought after turmeric is Alipi turmeric. But scientifically, it doesn't exist. Um, there's no such thing as AFT, Alipi finger turmeric. There's Prathiba turmeric, which is this beautiful high curcumin content varietal that's really healthy for you and um, grows really, really well with cacao. There's um, Madhvi. There's there's an incredible wealth of turmeric varietals. There's purple turmeric. There's mango-flavored turmeric. There's so much turmeric. But because we are still following this colonial idea of what turmeric is and what it should look like, farmers... They don't have the market for the real product and the true Indian exotic product. So I guess my plan for this cooperative and this business is to slowly tell deeper stories but through selling spice. And I think that these farmers have been, quote unquote, fucked over too many times to do it in a fast sort of buy tons of turmeric from them, process it and export it here. In all of my conversations with them, they've made it very clear that they would want it to be a very slow, high investment process. Um, so right now what I have to invest is a lot of time and a lot of big eyes and big questions. That's what I'm investing. And uh, hopefully over the next five years, it's a lot more than that. So that's the plan. That's so exciting. Well, great. So how can we follow along with you? You can find me at my sometimes updated website, sanajaverikadri.com, or on Instagram, which is honestly where I am most days of the week, um, which is sanajaverikadri, S-A-N-A-J-A-V-E-R-I-K-A-D-R-I, or in Mumbai. Yeah, come visit any of you. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thanks so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you. I feel like I was given language to think about things and talk about things through this conversation, which was really nice. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place. Made by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wells. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any podcast app. And you can learn more at deliciousrevolutionshow.com. There we've got pictures and notes all about the interviews, and you can sign up for our monthly email. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, too. Mm-hmm.